Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another special Ukraine war report in episode 159. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Easy is over. The war in Ukraine is expanding fast. Putin is slaughtering civilians. He's bombing hospitals. He's committing war crimes. Hundreds more civilians could die by the time you finish this podcast. This is a time for action. And now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. Скільки треба? Скажіть, яка кількість людей повинна повинна взірватися? Скільки треба рук, ніг, голів, щоб вони були відірвані, відлетіли вони, щоб достукатись до вас, щоб ви це закрили? Скільки треба? Кількість, скажіть, я піду, ми будемо рахувати і почекаємо до цього моменту. That's Ukraine's heroic president Zelensky pleading with the world. And I'll translate. He says, how long do you need? How many legs, arms, heads should be severed so that you understand? If you don't have the strength to provide a no-fly zone, then give us planes. Would that not be fair? That's what he says. Give us planes. Give us planes. All he wants is a fighting chance. All he wants is to protect his people. All he wants is a way to stop Putin from killing children and bombing hospitals filled with babies. All he wants is action. Russian forces have now bombed a maternity and children's hospital in southern Ukraine. The attack came despite Russia agreeing to a 12-hour pause in hostilities to allow refugees to evacuate. And Maripol City Council posted a video of the devastated hospital in that city and claimed Russian forces dropped several bombs on it from the air. They're bombing children's hospitals. This is what Putin is doing. And it must be stopped. The fight of our time is here. The time for action is here. It's time for us to enter the danger zone and get used to it. Easy is over. Russian chess master, patriot, and Putin clinic Gary Kasparov has said it. Will you listen when I say this will take sacrifice and risk, not just wheat and gas prices, not just empty chalets and unemployed lobbyists? Easy is over. Easy is over. More and more by the day. There are only hard choices left now. Wartime is here. Not just for Ukraine, but for everyone in the world who cares about freedom, liberty, and humanity. And now, more than any other time in our lifetime, now is a time for us all to stay vigilant. And now is also a time for us to fight in whatever way we can and to take action. And I'll focus on it on this show until the war is over. We're going to talk to analysts, politicians, fighters, and leaders. And we're going to support Ukraine in any way we can. We will take action. Because now, like never, ever before, stakes is high. Like never before, stakes is high. So here on Independent Americans, I will continue to bring you these Ukraine war reports. We'll amplify our unique focus on national security, military operations, veterans affairs, foreign policy, activism, to bring you more independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, break the groupthink, and stay vigilant. And I'll continue to dig deeper and bring you guests that add light to contrast to heat. We won't just talk about what's happening, we'll talk about what's next. We'll adapt, improvise, and overcome, and find ways to demand and take action. Easy is over, and only hard choices remain, especially for America. And those choices mean action. 
President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine are crying out for a no-fly zone. They're crying out for more help. They're crying out for planes. They're crying out for action. And while our government hems and haws, our people step up to take action, just like generation after generation before us, and just like in Afghanistan this summer and since. Ukraine is crying for help, and the U.S. is not delivering, and media groupthink is dominating. It's the same old wonks, desk jockeys, and long-ago retired generals that are dominating the conversation. Take the issue of a no-fly zone. Yes, someone would have to enforce it. But it doesn't have to be the U.S. or only the U.S. or only NATO. Any number of nations or any nation can do it. And there's a magnificent lack of creativity in solving this for the people of Ukraine and beyond. We can't continue to deny Ukraine and President Zelensky's request as they die by the day, while children die by the day. And we got to bust up the same old crew of academics, political hacks, and retired generals that are driving so much of the discussion right now. A lot of them are the same people who sold America on Iraq, downplayed the insurgency, forgot about Afghanistan, underestimated the Taliban, etc., etc., They've done the public a disservice for two decades, and we need to challenge and disrupt it. Easy is over, and it's a time for action. Zelensky said this week, it is already bad. If you wait, it will be too late. We will lose millions of people. That's what's before us right now, the prospect of losing millions of people. And for those that fear a no-fly zone will result in immediate nuke action from Putin, Think about a different prospect. Think about the prospect of 15 nuke disasters without it. There are 15 nuke plants inside Ukraine. And President Zelensky continues to warn that Russia will strike them. Russia has no concern for their stability or the environmental impact. But Cold War analyst and MSNBC contributor Tom Nichols says this is hysteria. That's what he tweeted at me this week. And I responded. That's dismissive and unhelpful. There's nothing hysterical about exploring and discussing multiple courses of action in a time of war. And talking about the prospect of things like nuke sites being unsecure or loose nukes in Russia. We have to talk about these prospects, and especially one Zelensky continues to beg for. He's not hysterical. He's watching his people die. And his urgency shouldn't be dismissed as hysteria. And these folks think that those scenarios are irresponsible. But declaring that Putin will nuke us if somebody establishes a no-fly zone isn't? Most people can decide for themselves what they panic about. And they're over the that-can-never-happen assurances that have dominated over the last few years. We have to lay out new ideas. We have to challenge groupthink. And we have to discuss issues like the no-fly zone, especially when Zelensky keeps crying for it every day in the international media. Now, I have a shitty analogy, but maybe it's a useful one. In some ways, dealing with Putin is kind of like dealing with NBA star LeBron James. Stay with me here. People keep saying, we can't impose a no-fly zone because it will piss off Putin. And we can't piss off Putin because he might launch a nuke and end the whole world. Well, that's bullshit. It's defeatist. And it's exactly what Putin wants. It's like when people say, don't foul LeBron because it might make him mad. And then he'll really go off and he might score 50 points on you. But he's already going to score 40. And if you foul him and slow him down, you disrupt him. Maybe you injure him. Maybe you knock him out of the game. But no doubt that by fouling him hard, you deny him that basket. And each shot he takes, you make him work harder for it. And maybe he only scores 45 instead of 50. But if you lay back and don't foul him, he controls the game, he drives the tempo, he scores all he wants, and you most likely lose. And if you don't like talking about what doing nothing could do, you're really not going to like this scenario which could happen whether or not someone establishes a no-fly zone. No matter what happens, long, hard, bloody days are ahead, maybe many. 
But if we make sacrifices now, if we take action now, it will be worth it. And Ukraine could win this thing. But even that won't make everything peaceful. Peace in the world is a fantasy now, and probably will be for a while. Because even if Ukraine runs the table and Russia loses, Russia could implode. And that could mean 140 million angry people. And maybe the only thing more dangerous than Putin with nukes is having Russia splinter into multiple pieces with its nukes lacking security. The question we should ask now is not whether or not Putin will use nukes, but how secure are they right now? And how secure are they if he's killed or toppled? Imagine the next refugee crisis, when millions of Russians flee a collapsing superpower and the oligarchs and military break apart into dozens of factions and private armies. That shit will look like World War Z, until it looks like Mad Max. Easy is over, and the days ahead, even after the defeat of Russia, could look even more scary. But we can do more. We must do more now. That means a no-fly zone or a variation of it. It also means lend-lease and cutting off Russian oil, two necessary steps America can take now to support Ukraine. And most Americans agree on them and are helping push Washington to make it happen. But we've got to move faster to help Ukraine in any way we can. But it's a good action that's finally underway from Biden. I've said this over and over again. It's past time for Biden to really level with the American people and explain this war in Ukraine will require sacrifices from us all. Now we know it. Paying at the pump is necessary, and the least we can do. With Iraq and Afghanistan, Americans got used to no sacrifice. And that was an epic fail and a permanent stain on the fabric of our country. But Biden still has an opportunity to reset that this time. Of course, there are some among us who have sacrificed tremendously since 9-11. You've heard from people like Bonnie Carroll at TAPS. You know about Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and groups like the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation and others. Firefighters, widows, veterans, they've sacrificed tremendously. But we're a tiny percentage of the overall population. 20 years without sacrifice from 99% of the public should not be the American model for war. Easy is over for everyone. That's what a world war requires. And the Biden administration has finally gotten behind a coordinated push to cut off Russian oil. Good. But the Biden administration was misjudging the American people on this one. If it's explained properly, America's willing to cut off Putin's oil and make sacrifices to support this war effort. But Biden's got to frame it up. This is a 9-11 moment for the world. Gas prices are going up worldwide. That's Putin's fault not Joe Biden's fault. And I, for one, don't want fascist blood oil from Russia in my American-made gas tank. And this is the moment for action. And every crisis is an opportunity. The opportunity now for the world is to build on Ukraine's inspiring momentum, defeat Russia, and kill or imprison Putin. It's the only way to end this threat once and for all and create a brighter world for everybody. But the U.S. has to meet the moment and do more. You should read the latest from Molly McHugh, who's been a regular guest on this show and joined us just a couple episodes ago. She's been nailing it since the war began. In her new piece, she wrote, five days ago, I would have said Ukraine is where we must fight Putin's war. Now, I believe that Ukraine is where we can win the war against Putin. Ukraine has conceptualized how to defeat Russia. Now, we must help them do it. She's right. This moment is not just about slowing down Putin. It's about Ukraine winning, Putin being removed, and Russia finally transforming into the potential of what it could always be, and what Europe and our entire world could be. The U.S. has to stop playing not to lose and start playing to win. And more and more of us are seeing that by the day. And as I previewed in the last two episodes, it includes American veterans who are joining the fight. This week, there were more stories in the news about these brave American vets and Western vets from all across the world who are joining the fight. The New York Times had a piece written by the great Dave Phillips. Task and Purpose had a piece. 
And I hope I'll be able to bring you some of the voices of these vets in the weeks to come on this show. Vets will fight. You've heard it in over 100 episodes on this show. Vets will help. Likely many of them will. Just like so many times before in our history, American vets will answer the call. American vets will step up to fight the good fight against evil, just like every generation before us. And they will be joined by Americans of all backgrounds. This is the time for action. This is a time for truly independent Americans. The time for talk is over. And our guest in this episode is a man of action. He's a combat veteran, a combat-tested pilot, a political dogfighter, a political maverick. He's back. He's Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He's a guy who lives in the political danger zone. And he joined us just 10 episodes ago for one of the most downloaded episodes of Independent Americans ever. He's back to meet the new moment, back with a new list of action items, and back with a new baby son. The 43-year-old Illinois Republican congressman, Air Force veteran, political maverick, and fighter of the good fight is Adam Kinzinger. He's a man of this moment in American politics and American history. He catapulted to the forefront of our consciousness just a few months ago as one of only two Republicans on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. He's been leading a fight to save the soul of America. He's been leading a fight to hold the January 6th attackers accountable. He's been leading a fight to oppose Donald Trump and try to save the Republican Party. And now he's in the cockpit again to help lead America's fight against a new threat. Vladimir Putin. It's an enemy he knows. It's an enemy he's faced. And it's an enemy he's helping America understand and confront now. He's the man in the arena, again and more than ever. And for many, maybe even more so now, Kinzinger is the best hope out there for a viable independent candidate for president of the United States. And he's back for another no-holes-barred, fast-paced, no-bullshit conversation about the latest out of Ukraine. And I fire some heat-seeking missile questions at him that must be answered. I asked him why he supports a no-fly zone. I asked him if we're already at war with Russia. And is it only a matter of time before someone in Congress actually calls for a vote to declare war on Russia? What the fuck is up with the MiG fighter planes to Poland? And now, will he finally leave the Republican Party? We're flying hard and fast through all of it, and we're keeping no rounds saved. It's gut check time for America and the world. Will we really stand with Ukraine? Will America fight alongside Ukraine? Will we take action? Easy is over. Wartime is here, and that war is expanding by the minute. To assume America can sit out forever is maybe the most risky move of all. Welcome to the political dogfight happening between Putin and the world. Welcome to the hard choices. Welcome to the time to take action. Welcome to the danger zone. Welcome to another Ukraine war report. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 159. Independent Americans around the country, around the world, and inside the Ukraine, wherever you are, deep in the fight or looking to stay aware, I'm going to continue to bring you Ukraine War Report special episodes. And I had to bring back uh, a returning champion, uh, a recent guest of the show, but I think one of the most important voices in the country and therefore in the world on Ukraine right now. The great and powerful Congressman Adam Kinzinger is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, sir. Thanks, buddy. Good to be with you. You're too. You're way too kind. Appreciate well, it. Let's start with good news. Um, you had a baby, so congratulations on the birth Thank of your you. son since last time. And I thank need to you. Be kind and to I, you. you may hear him screaming in the background a couple times. We'll see. We'll see if we can keep it keep it lively here. 
Yeah. Well, combat's nothing compared to having a, a newborn during a pandemic. So I, I wish you well. Um, but, you know, you're probably working off of two or three hours of sleep. Uh, and your son is now being born into a very, very different world than the last time we spoke. I want to cover the no-fly zone. I want to talk about American uh, veterans inside Ukraine. I want to talk about what comes next. But I want to start with the big question. You are many, one of many who have been warning about the threat of Russia. Is this already war with Russia? Is this already war with three when a country has waged cyber attacks, has, has attacked our elections, and is now doing all the things they're doing? I have been critical of Joe Biden in not leveling with the American people about the stakes and the sacrifice to come. But in your view, are we already at war with Russia? You know, it's a good question. I think kind of in the 21st century, you know, obviously, when people think of World War Three, they think of it's either going to be nukes or it's going to be you know, millions and millions and millions of people dead. I think if you look at the definition, um, you know, I, I think a, a pretty solid argument could be made that we're in some version of that. Uh, you could also make the argument that there's, you know, whole parts of the world that aren't involved in this. I, I do certainly think it's open conflict with Russia. I, I think Russia knows that. I think, you know, to an extent, some in our government know that. But I do think we're in denial. Look, when when Russia made the decision, you know, in 2014 for Crimea, for the the contested regions, and then obviously for what happened today or, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's clear they are not going to slow down. And I think this is the key is, yes, Ukraine is fighting for us. Ukraine is on the front lines for us. We hope Ukraine wins. But, man, if you're concerned Russia is going to use a nuclear weapon or you're concerned that they're serious about that, they're going to use it against Ukraine if they lose. So I think the, the sooner we can come to grips with the fact that, you know, look, we have a crisis of confidence in this country. We, we somehow think of our military as equal to Russia. We somehow think of Russia basically as being able to destroy anybody they want at any time. In theory, they could. But do we just give them Europe then? Let them march wherever they want. This is what we have to grapple with. And I'm, I'm not sure the old Cold War talking points we've been hearing have been doing justice. So that, that's exactly why I think we need to elevate your voice and disrupt the kind of groupthink that's happening, especially on cable news with the same group of wonks and analysts and retired generals who've been taking us, you know, many of them took us into Iraq, you know, led us through 20 years of, 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 of disaster in Afghanistan, you know, missed the prediction on Afghanistan. They're the same leaders, the same thought leaders, the same talking heads that are guiding this country's conversation to include defining what war is. And especially for those of us who've been involved in war in the last generation, I think we define it differently. But let me ask you a related question I think is important. Uh, the authorized use of military force has not been repealed. We haven't declared war as a country in a generation. Um, is that coming? Is that part of what is inevitable? There's going to be a member of Congress who says, I am I'm asking Congress to declare war. Or are we going to just let Biden run this like we have for the last 20 years? It seems like a time where we have to push Congress to have a discussion about this in this moment, because there's never been a more important time to define the limitations of presidential power and maybe to redefine what war is. Maybe that's a way to get there. So do you anticipate a discussion about declaration of war uh, in Congress? And if that comes, would you support it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think well, well, I think a version of that will come. You know, there's going to be people on the floor making comments. I don't think we'll ever get back to kind of how we think of it, like Congress will debate the merits of war or not. Um, I just think at this moment when everybody, um, I will even include myself, when everybody in Congress is a foreign policy expert, they're a commander in chief. I just think it's almost impossible nowadays with as quickly as things move to actually debate issues of war and peace beyond funding. Uh, I, I wish there was a better way to do it. I wish we could, you know, 500 of us basically put aside this, you know, an attempt to get on TV or to do C-SPAN or whatever and have a real conversation. But I just don't foresee that happening anytime soon. Um, we can limit the presidential power. And I'm actually a big believer of this with the presidential power now, not necessarily in starting a whole war. But yeah, I do believe, um, you know, uh, to an extent there'll be people discussing it, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Not at all. The question that I have and I've been critical of is what is Joe Biden's red line? Where does America stand? I think the world is questioning whether or not America will fight 
We will go to the edge. We will go to the water's edge, whether it's Afghanistan or now Russia with an imminent evil threat. It seems like America wants to sit it out as long as it, it can to include the discussion of a no-fly zone. So I guess the, the question that I continue to raise is, can we think more creatively? It feels like Biden is not dynamic enough for the moment. It feels like Congress is not dynamic enough for the moment. And maybe Putin's not dynamic enough for the moment. And maybe Zelensky is the one leader who seems to be dynamic enough for this new world of warfare. So when we come to the no-fly zone as an example, you and I have been advocating for it. Zelensky is crying for it. The, the Ukrainian people are crying for it. But there's simultaneously a lack of creativity. It doesn't have to be all of NATO. It doesn't even have to be the U.S. It can be anybody. They're asking for something to be done. And we seem to be arguing about the how rather than the what. So I guess the question for, that I have for you is, why do you support a no-fly zone? And, and, and where is this conversation going where it seems like now we're entertaining, redefining what it is, giving MIGs potentially to Poland and then not, right? Or helping Poland with MIGs and then not. We're jerking people around here. So the question is, you know, why do you think there should be a no-fly zone? And if not a no-fly zone, what are the immediate alternatives that we can explain to the American people and enforce to help the Ukrainians right now? Look, I think first off, a lot of the stuff leading up to this moment, the administration has gotten right in terms of, you know, particularly some of the economic stuff that's important, Etc. You know, uh, plussing up our, our troop presence in NATO countries. Here's the thing with the no-fly zone. I think this is important to, to put in context. We're not going to impose a no-fly zone over Russia. We're not talking about imposing a no-fly zone over Belarus. We're talking about at the invitation of the sovereign nation of Ukraine, who wants its skies protected at the request of its allies doing that. So from an international law perspective, this is not an imposition of anything. It's basically working with our ally to ensure their sky is free and safe. So what you get on the talking head circuit is this automatic jump to, and I don't want to minimize it, it's always a risk, but this automatic jump to, and you see it in, in Twitter, it's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea if you want global thermonuclear war. They have to put it out there in the longest description they possibly can. So here's the deal. Part of this, as you well know, is a, a different, people don't understand the difference between strategic and tactical nukes. Obviously, Russia has a, a context of escalate to de-escalate. To, to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Is that a risk? It certainly is. But that will be the same exact risk, even a greater risk, if in fact Ukraine defeats Russia on the battlefield. Because then Vladimir Putin will make the decision, I will use tactical nukes. I will escalate to de-escalate, to break the will of the Ukrainian people. If you believe that Vladimir Putin, in response to a no-fly zone, yes, it may take taking out a SAM site or two by, of Russia if they light up and fire at these aircraft. Okay, that's what this is. But if you think he is going to take on NATO and the United States with nuclear weapons, using nuclear weapons, because at the request of Ukraine, we're defending their skies, then you have to assume he's going to do it to Ukraine anyway. But but Russia has always had this thing where they threaten it because it puts the fear of God in all of us, and it works. And so what we've done by ruling it out, look, if, if Biden doesn't want to do a no-fly zone, that's fine. But leave it on the table. You don't have to say what you won't do. Because having the threat of doing something in many cases is the only way for diplomacy against an adversary to actually work. And then just quickly to answer the question, there are so many different iterations from a humanitarian corridor protection to Western Ukraine, to all of Ukraine, all of that's up in the open. But the idea that if we shoot down a Russian aircraft is going to lead to global thermonuclear war, that's going to happen on the ground in Ukraine anyway, if that's the case. And also, again, Turkey shot down a Russian aircraft, and all that led to was discussions between Putin and Erdogan in an alliance that lasted for a few years. I, I think it's important to pull this apart and, and also understand you're a pilot, who has flown in combat for the United States military. We are talking to a person of the next generation who understands the dynamism of this. You also understand the politics of this. And I think we've been challenged to find folks who understand both the military component and the political component. There are very few people that can understand both. And I think that that has included the president who doesn't seem to understand that Americans will tolerate higher gas prices if it's leveled with them. If you say to the country, this is going to be hard, this is going to be long, it's going to be brutal, and it will require sacrifice, and it will be worth it. 
right? It may take a long time. I don't think that leveling has happened. So when folks come back at me and say, by saying a no-fly zone, you mean you're okay with shooting down a Russian airplane? Yes, I am. I am okay with that if they are bombing a bunch of civilians and they're blowing up a a, a children's hospital or if they come across the border into Poland. So I think you've been touching on this. It's we learned in the military, don't let the enemy control the tempo. Putin continues to control the tempo here. And this seems like a moment where we can shift the momentum. There's a, there is a scenario, whether what percentage likelihood, we don't know, where Ukraine could win, where Putin falls, where Russia changes. That may take 30 years, and it may be a world where we've got loose nukes or un, unsecured nukes, where we've got nuke sites, 15 of them in the Ukraine, that are that are not secure. These are threats that are worth discussing. You, you and I both know that folks have come after me for that, saying it's alarmist or it's panic-inducing. I think that's scenario planning as a military person, right? Plan for every most dangerous course of action. So what I'm asking is, at what point does the American public, in your view, get leveled with where they understand that we're probably going to have to shoot at Russians or they're going to shoot at us? But Putin's told us he's going to do that. So are we going to wait for them to do it or are we going to do it and control the tempo? I think that's the framing that is missing here. I think that's a great question because, look, I don't think there's, you know, as we're recording this, we just heard that they hit a maternity hospital, Russia, during a ceasefire. Listen, if you guys think that's horrific, just wait. I mean, just go with what happened in Syria every day, a new hospital bomb. That's how he's going to act. And look, truthfully, the most powerful person in a room is the one willing to commit the most violence. So if you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest dude in the world. I could be in a room with somebody that's like four foot eight, but if they're willing to stab me, they're more powerful than me. And I think that's when it comes to military stuff, how we have to see this. So Vladimir Putin has made it clear. He has no problem with leveling, you know, civilians. He's going to scatter them out of uh, Ukraine. He'll send in conscripts and he'll do it. And they, he doesn't care how fast they die. He may care, but it's not going to, it's not going to mitigate him. So I think day after day of waking up to this, the American people are good. We're going to have to do something, a no-fly zone. And by the way, every day that goes by, it becomes harder to do because there is more Russian equipment in Ukraine. There is more stuff. But again, the other thing is at least leave it on the table. When you, when you think that you're you know, saving America's you know, fear by saying, oh, don't worry, everybody, no American troops will go in. Okay, maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll make somebody feel a little better. But actually, by leaving that on the table, you could prevent much, much more violence. And yeah. the, the last thing on this, too, and the last thing from my, you know, point, I, I'm not sure if I missed any of your questions on that, but like, we need to get past treating our military as if it is a precious kitten that at all costs should never be utilized and should always be protected. There's a reason we spend almost $800 billion on the military. There is a reason we have volunteers because people choose to be there. I don't care if you even go in for the college money, you made a choice. And there's a reason we invest in gajillion dollar fighter jets and body armor and vehicles. We wanna protect people as best we can, but we expect that we may have to use it. Look, if we don't ever want to use the military, if using the military is the worst in state that we could possibly think of, not the destruction of Ukraine, but the use of the U.S. military, then I think we need to cut the military probably to one tenth and we could just make them border guards because we don't even have to worry about an invasion in this country. I mean, we'll, we'll stop any invader, you and me, with our guns, but we invest so that we can utilize it when necessary. I think that the framing is important. This is a fight. We are already in the fight. The question is, what do we use in the fight? And we've got a gun closet full of resources that the whole world can see and the whole world wants. And we're we're locking the door. And I think to your point, Biden saying, I'll never put boots on the ground. We'll never get into shooting it. Right. He's boxing himself in, too. Like if that does happen and he gets caught on it, right, then he loses even more trust. So there's a question about trust and leveling and transparency where it feels like the disconnect we saw around Afghanistan, where there is a brutal reality of what's happening in a place. And the White House seems to be moving too slow, not leveling with the American people, not being aggressive enough when needed to prevent future death. Kasparov, the great chess player, keeps saying easy is over. And I think those of yeah. us who've been in the military know that, and we're looking for politicians to level with us about that, and, and Biden in particular. I think he missed a 9-11 moment during the State of the Union to level with people and set the stage for what could be to come. But to that related point, 
congressman. Um, our brothers and sisters who are veterans uh, are feeling the tug. I feel it. You probably feel it. This feels like the good fight in a way it never was when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe like my grandfather fought in World War II for three years. Um, there are now veterans who are there, who are on their way, who are signing up. But there's a part of this, again, that I don't think Biden is calculating for. What are they going to do to them if they're in the IRR? If you're if you're in the individual ready reserves, uh, you're a drilling National Guardsman, you go over and you get in the fight. Kirby was asked this the other day by, I think, Tom Bowman from NPR, and he punted on it. But this is happening. Thousands of Americans are going to volunteer to fight. And then there are all the other angles of what could happen with propaganda value if one is captured. You know, if, if Zelensky decides to elevate them to try to pull America more, I feel like this is a forward edge of the fight where our skin in the game is 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 getting ratcheted up. What do you think here on this? I mean, it's hard to tell how many, you know, who's there. But from a DOD standpoint, what are they going to do when when more and more of our brothers and sisters go because our government's not in the same way they did in Afghanistan? You know, it's it's so interesting. The parallels to the interwar period or the pre-war period in World War II are, are so amazing to me. And not and and that doesn't mean every parallel is accurate or everything that happened in World War II happens here. You know, the fact that Russia right now is bogged down and paying a much heavier price in Ukraine could 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 lead to them being less likely to attack NATO territory in Moldova, Baltics, because we've obviously seen the Russian military is not as capable as we thought. OK, but you also see in, in World War Two, there were Americans. You just have to watch Pearl Harbor and you can see it. Uh, ben Affleck, you know. There are Americans that went over to, to the UK and fought basically as Americans, you know, under the British flag, basically. And, and you're seeing that here. Here's here's the interesting thing. So as a reservist myself, I would not go because, again, I still have guard responsibility. I have AT responsibility. I still fly planes, et cetera. As on the inactive ready reserve. I have a hard time seeing how the military can prevent people from going. The inactive reserve, you're basically there on paper as a reservist, uh, but you have a right to basically do anything you want. And I think it's something that, you know, they're, they're going to have to wrestle with where, where we could be doing a lot better, where the administration could be doing better, is where you see this tug on people to go and fight and serve in the International Legion. Which would be kind of cool. I mean, honestly, if I was single, it would it would it would certainly tug on me to go do that. But um, there are ways I think we can do it that will be that would actually be beneficial. So, if the United States, for instance, gave UAVs to Ukraine, and then we basically had this international legion of former UAV pilots or sensor operators that actually maybe could operate out of Romania or Western Ukraine, uh, if you had you know, people that may be skills in law enforcement, and they could go alleviate people in Lviv, Ukraine, and, and do law enforcement stuff while those police forces who actually are fighting in combat would forward deploy to the East. I think there's ways we could do that with more official help, but I don't know. It's interesting. There's, there's, if there's a, I, I, I'll tell you, it certainly tugs at me. Yeah, but there's a stunning lack of creativity. And again, I, I go back to the, the 9-11 moment where, in my view, Biden's State of the Union was like Bush saying after 9-11, go shopping. There is no question right. of shared sacrifice. There's no ask for sacrifice. And there's no options to serve. And I think that's where they're missing an opportunity to actually help Ukraine. We all wanted to do something in Afghanistan. And we were told there's nothing you can do except watch it all burn. And we found friends who had NGOs and we we helped get people out and we created the digital Dunkirk. That digital Dunkirk is now shifting over to Ukraine. Right. And they're not just door kickers. They're cooks. They're medics. They're people who want to do humanitarian work. And the White House is failing to provide those men and women with a way to help. So what can Congress do for you as a member of Congress? I feel like you and others who are both sides of the aisle. This is an independent Americans moment where I think especially the veterans yeah. in Congress seem to look at it differently, seem to understand it differently, and maybe can help push options forward that are different. You can be more aggressive on cutting off the oil, but maybe you can ask people for ways to get involved. If the president doesn't do it, what do you tell your constituents? What do you tell the, your buddies in the Air Force who want to help that don't just want to you know, donate to a Venmo account? 
It's a great question. And uh, I mean, one of the best things we can do in that case is, is on the PR side and come up with creative solutions. You know, Alexander Vindman's the one that mentioned to me about possibly sending the UAVs and some of the international legion to go operate. I'm like, brilliant. Those are kind of ideas that can push forward. I think an important point to make, you know, you brought up Afghanistan. So I think it was October, November, I got the briefing from state that said this attack on Ukraine was going to happen. I'll tell you, I've been in Congress 12 years now. I have never once seen the intel community be so certain of something. Um, and that's why, you know, they, they obviously did a great job, I think, in putting that out early and kind of, kind of, you know, cutting off Putin's misinformation. But I did ask this political appointee, high-ranking political appointee in state, did the withdrawal from Afghanistan have anything to do with the timing? And he said, yes. We believe that Putin believes after Afghanistan, there is a permissive environment, okay? I'm not saying that to just point at Joe Biden and relitigate leaving Afghanistan. I think the point to make, though, we left Afghanistan because we were just tired of doing it, right? I don't think there's anybody that believes we ever would have actually been defeated there. We were just tired of doing it. Okay. And again, we can have different opinions on whether we should have left. It's not to really litigate that. But I think what's obvious is when you take what seems to be the easy decision, the easy decision at the time was to leave Afghanistan and be done with it. Sometimes you see worse things come as a result. I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I would be willing to bet greater than 50-50 odds that if we didn't leave Afghanistan, uh, we would not be dealing today we would not be dealing today with this war in Ukraine. That's did I get choppy a, on you? You got no, no. That that came so, that came through Lame Charlie. That's a provocative statement. That's the one that folks are gonna are gonna are gonna hear. And and I think those of us who who look at these types of and situations, it's not a blame. It's not but, no. But I think I it's I think it's important it's, to think it's through. a truth. It's a truth, yep. right? If you sit out the last fight. There's going to be a question about whether or not you get in the next one. That is a real right. thing to ask. It's a responsible thing to ask. But here's the question that, especially for the veterans who listen to this show, I have to ask you. There was no accountability after Afghanistan. Not a single person in the U.S. government was fired, resigned, and all the same people from Jake Sullivan across the Pentagon just got rewarded with another war to take on, right? So how do we, um, what do you do as a member of Congress? And how do you, how do you approach that when we go into really the next phase of this global conflict era with exactly the same people who fucked up the last one? Like how, that's what outrages, I think, especially veterans, that there were massive failures. We all see it. Biden wants to put it in the rearview mirror, but now it's coming back up for obvious reasons. So will there ever be any accountability for failure in the administration on Afghanistan? Probably not. No, um, I, I mean, look, it's uh, nothing was likely done criminal. I think you know the administration is eager to put Afghanistan behind them. Um, what I'd like to see, honestly, is a whole new tranche of kind of foreign policy thinkers and experts come forward. You know, I, I do think, look, we, you know, we can disagree on whether we should have gotten into Iraq and Afghanistan in the first place, but that was kind of a new generation of thinkers that had new ways of fighting war, new ideas. We have the same people. And, and now with Russia, we're recycling cold warriors. You know, yeah, when we were up against the Soviet Union, we did not want to provoke the Soviet Union because they were our equal. You know, that would be World War Three. Russia is not the Soviet Union. Russia is not as capable. It's a different thing. But if you're stuck in your 1985 academic theories, then of course you don't want to go head to head with Russia because it's basically everything you learned about the Soviet Union. That's why we just need new generation of thinkers, hawks, doves, whatever you want to call them, new generation of people that can think outside of the box. From Congress, you know, it's it's members of Congress and the Senate with new ideas. It's also staff that come and work. And I always encourage members of Congress to try to empower your staff because they could be either the next members of Congress or they could be the next person in the White House with new ideas. And if you empower them, you give them that kind of opportunity to grow in how they think. And the other thing is like, you know, look, some of the some of the toughest people that actually have a hard time adjusting into politics are people that come out of the military, partially because you know, they come out and you're used to giving an order and it's followed. And now you have to start kind of massaging people's feelings. Um, but people that come out of the military, I think, have a great deal of on the ground understanding, you know, foreign policy. Yeah, uh, like it's it's broader than the use of the military, but mm. it is important to know how that affects the military. To that point, 
this the way this is unfolding creates political challenges, but also political opportunities. And it, and it puts veterans in the front and center, as, as veterans who are pilots, veterans who are political mavericks, front and center in a way that it wouldn't have if, if this didn't happen. There is a scenario where the Democrats lose the House. You know, Biden, you know, either either loses to Trump or someone else. You know, Biden, uh, uh, Putin has bogged us down in something, bogged the world down in something and waits us out. Right. Gets us in a quagmire, gets NATO in a quagmire, gets Ukraine in a quagmire and waits for political change to happen in the United States that becomes more favorable. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If it's Biden and Trump and Ukraine is still waging and, and and it's a full-blown insurgency like we saw in Afghanistan and other places, does this make you more likely to run for president as an independent or as a breakaway Republican of some kind? Yeah, I mean, if those were the two choices, it would certainly make it more likely. Uh, again, I, nobody believes me, but I'm not eager to seek this out, but it would make me more likely because, I look, uh, Joe Biden's a nice man. I disagree with his policies. Donald Trump's a terrible man. Um, and in my mind, I, I would vote, you know, if I wasn't running or there was no other option, I would vote for Biden now before I would vote for Donald Trump, because I think Donald Trump was dangerous to the republic. Uh, and we have since seen it, particularly on foreign policy as well. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it it does make it possible. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because I, you know, I get called a warmonger all the time on the Twitter sphere. And I hate war. You hate war. Right. Sometimes, though, we understand that intervening before it's cool to intervene can make something go quicker. I was the first, I even beat John McCain at this. I teased him about it. I was the first member of Congress to call for bombing ISIS. I was called a, in fact, I got the nickname, which is kind of cool. It's Adam Bombsinger. But, uh, you know, I got the nickname of you, all you want to do is start a third Iraq war. Well, six months later, you know, it was the cool thing to do to fight ISIS. But guess what? Had we done it six months prior to that, they would have been killed in the cradle. So, I think being able to look forward on world events and predict where things go and hope you're wrong. But I think that is going to be important in whoever the next president is not managing the day-to-day politics, not worrying about your reelection, but actually looking steps forward and saying, where do we need to move these chess pieces similar to what we did in the cold war? I think I'm good at that. And I I don't say that braggingly. I I just, I think I I can, I can notice where things are going. It, it opens up a space for you, right? If, if, if we were just talking about COVID, it would open up a space for someone who is a doctor, right? But given this, the way this is unfolding, it opens up a space for you. But last time I asked you, you told me you were going to see, but I want to ask you, the Republican Party has gotten worse. Now there are, there are some in the Republican Party that seem to be echoing Putin's talking points. It's not peacetime anymore. Now it's wartime. The stakes are even higher. And, and the, the problems and, and erosion and disintegration of, of, of core within the Republican Party has gotten more urgent. So are you going to stay in the Republican Party? If this, if this right now, I mean, do, do you wake up every morning and say, hey, I'm, this is it. I've had enough of this shit. I'm going to leave and, and start something else or go somewhere else? I wake up every morning and say, Hey, I've had enough of this shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, but are you going to, are you going to leave? Like yeah. I asked you last time and you basically told me you would leave if Trump got the nomination, but now things are accelerating in a yeah. different way. Is there something else that will get you to leave this party? Look, there, there may be a day. There very well may to be a day. It's not yet. It's not yet. You know, I, I want to see, I, I have some new born again, anti-Putiners in the party now that we'll see how long that lasts. They're anti-Putin, but they're going to actually go after Joe Biden more than Putin. Um, but look, I'm really disappointed in my party. For now, I'm still in. You know, I think it's important from what I'm doing on the January 6th committee and politically to remain a Republican uh, for credibility. But, you know, my patience isn't infinite. It's something I would, I truly do think about almost daily is, you know, is there, a, is there an alternative? It's obviously very difficult. Um, but even if there never is an alternative, even if we're stuck with the two-party system for eternity, uh, there is going to be a point where it's just obvious the Republican Party of today is the Republican Party. And, but for now, it deserves some battle. It deserves well, a fight. I'm rooting for anybody who's fighting against Putin. I'm rooting for anybody who's supporting Ukraine. I'm rooting for anybody who's trying to disrupt the broken political system. And you yeah. know, I keep saying this on independent Americans, especially we're looking for 
people we can root for who are who are challenging the status quo, disrupting the group think, and especially on the most issue important issues of our time. So, you know, you're a voice that I think is is so critical. I'm grateful for your time and for you pushing it, man. Like we need you out there shaking shit up and asking hard questions and just forcing this, especially in the media, the, the group think to be disrupted on national security issues, particularly. We need new ideas. We need more ideas, not less ideas. And, and I appreciate the fact that you continue to bring that forward. And I hope you'll continue to do it in the, in the days to come. Well, thanks. By the way, thanks for your leadership. Thanks for putting this stuff forward. Cause you have a, I had a lot of people reach out after the last time I did it uh, and you've got, you've got a huge voice and I'll tell you, you know, let's tight just take quickly in closing that no fly zone issue, regardless of whether you agree with the no fly zone or not. I do think it deserves way more discussion than just saying, oh, you mean you want global thermonuclear war? Because that then puts you into the Soviet box. And we know containment is not working against Vladimir Putin because he refuses to be contained. These are necessary discussions. Even if I'm wrong on the no-fly zone, I'm willing to be wrong. But we have to think outside of our box. And let's also put a point on it. Zelensky and most of a country of 40 million people are begging for a no-fly zone. They're not all morons. They're not, they don't all want nuclear yep. war either. And the, like the oversimplification of the no-fly zone, I think, is unfortunately a reflection of the oversimplification of so many things in this country, and particularly around war. Those of us who've been in war know that it's not black and white. We know it's all gray. And there is, you know, easy is over. I think especially in times like this, easy is over and we need leaders who can explain that complexity and, and challenge the status quo. And you're doing that, man. So thank you for continuing. I hope you'll come back again soon. Congratulations on the baby. Um, it's it's an amazing thing. And I, I will tell you as a father, I can feel it already changing your 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 leadership style. Oh, right? thanks, man. It's awesome. I, I thought I'd hate not hate babies, you know, but like hate the diaper thing and whatever. I still don't like diapers, but having a baby, man, it's, when it's yours, it's like God does something that just changes your whole kind of like outlook on things. So it's pretty cool. It's all different. And I think that's the one thing I'll leave people with. Remember, I said this in an episode recently, nukes and kids. That makes everything different about this situation. That's how high the, and, and the children are the things that those of us who've been to combat will never forget seeing kids die, seeing kids wounded. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what we know is coming. So I appeal to everybody as a parent to, to, to try to connect with the Ukrainian people on that level and think about what it would be like if it were your children. There are people like you, Congressman, who have babies and they're in bunkers right now, hoping that a bomb doesn't land on them. And that's the kind of personal story component that we've got to help the American people understand, especially those who've never been to war. And by the way, let me say too, because I get hit on the Twitter with the because they don't know I'm actually in the military. Like, you're so eager to send other people to war, but not go yourself. I'm like, wait, hold on. You must not do your research. But look, I don't, my son's name is Christian. I don't want him to go to war, but I also want to make sure if he's in the military that he has the best equipment. And if he goes, it's for what it says behind you. It's for a righteous cause. And I think something like this is a righteous cause. If he was fighting for, you know, Putin's army and it was a land grab, be a much, much more hollow reason. Yeah. Well, thank you for your continued leadership. Thank you for all you're doing to move this country forward. I hope you get some sleep in there. You know, the only guy getting less sleep than you right now is probably everybody in, in Ukraine. But uh, That's right, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for juggling all of this and for keeping the flame going. Stay vigilant, sir. Yep. See you, dude. Take care. Thanks. All right. That's it. Adam Kinzinger, new dad, hater of diapers, disruptive voice, political maverick, righteous dude. And maybe the best person in politics to carry on the legacy of another political maverick and another combat pilot, Senator John McCain. And check out his new organization called Country First. The mission, he says, is to defeat toxic tribalism. They're dedicated to defeating the toxic tribalism that's tearing our families, friendships, and countries apart. He believes that reasonable people of goodwill have to band together to put country over party and save this nation for our kids and our grandkids. And he says they'll fight for leaders who are ready to do the same. And we're going to need it. Because while this fight goes on, truckers are surrounding the Capitol trying to muck up traffic. And I'll speak for most Americans here in saying that we have zero patience for your trucker bullshit right now. 
and our enemies are celebrating every day that it happens. So we're going to need Adam Kinzinger. And his new organization is a political action committee. He endorses candidates, and it's another weapon on the political battlefield that he's using. It's also the kind of thing you create before you run for president. So check out his organization and definitely follow him on Twitter. He's firing social media missiles hourly, and he's not holding back on Putin, on Trump, on Tucker Carlson, on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Thankfully for him, unlike a fighter plane, Twitter has unlimited rounds to fire. And he's firing them hourly. And it is not boring. He's a disruptive voice. He's a bold voice. He's a brave voice. He's an independent voice. And he's a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. He's one of many out there. Times are tough and the news is terrible. But check out the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and you will find inspiration. You will find people who are stepping up to meet the moment. And you can share yours. While you're at it, you can play Guess the Guest every Wednesday on social media. And a number of you correctly guessed Adam Kinzinger before this episode dropped. Brian, BTLCMH on Twitter, who is a Buckeye, Bomber, Bobcat fan, foster parent, political junkie. He correctly guessed Kinzinger. Congratulations, Brian. And... Our buddy BZIEG477 on Twitter, who is an 82nd Airborne Infantry vet and a high school history teacher. BZ again correctly guessed the guest and got Adam Kinzinger. And of course, taking no days off, our friend Delfino Sanchez down in Houston, Texas, correctly guessed Adam Kinzinger. And he also posted the picture of Adam Kinzinger. He finds the picture every single week I do this. I don't know how he finds it. I feel like he, along with the Russians, have hacked into our Dropbox and seems to find them. But Delfino Sanchez, you've done it again, man. Props, congratulations, and thank you. He also asked me which NFL trade has surprised me more. And I got to be honest. I haven't been watching sports much lately. I haven't had the appetite for it. But I did see the Russell Wilson to Broncos trade and the Carson Wentz to Washington. Which one surprised me more? Uh, Russell Wilson to the Broncos. I think this could be an amazing trade for the Broncos. John Elway and the Broncos can do it again. Russell Wilson's got a lot of time left. I wish my Giants would have gotten him, but it would have been wasted. Carson Wentz to Washington. I really don't think Wentz is that much of a big-time player. And... I do not root for Washington. I think the Commanders is a stupid name, and I will be rooting against them almost as ferociously as I did the previously named Washington football team. But Delfino also told me he checked out our episode with Malcolm Nance. He thought it was timely and fantastic. If you haven't checked out our recent episodes with Malcolm Nance, with Bianca Goladriga, and others, go to independentamericans.us. You can also see video from my conversation with Adam Kinzinger there. He's kind of lounged out on his couch. He looks like he's exhausted, but you get to see video. And for folks who don't want to listen to podcasts, you can check it out on YouTube. It's linked at Independent Americans. You can also get the gear and support this show. We've got lots of great gear, including the camping mug that I use in most of the episodes if you watch the video. It's a very durable, very cool Independent Americans camping mug. Check it out and support the show. Many of you have been doing that in many ways, and our numbers are way up. Our listenership has catapulted in the last couple weeks, so welcome especially to new listeners. We are at or near the top 100 political podcasts in America now. In the past, we got as high as number four in America, and I think we can get back there again because this is the moment, and you all continue to help us grow this movement and bring new content to independent voices. So spread the word and help us get back up there again. You can also support this show by joining our Patreon community. That's also linked at Independent American. Shout out to all of our Patreon members. You found out about this episode first. I give every Patreon member a sneak preview of who our guest is before it's announced publicly. You also get extra content, and we will have events coming in the year to come, I promise you. If you haven't already, please subscribe for free and share. And go to the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you listen to this and give us five stars. Independent Americans and Righteous Media will continue to bring you the five eyes in this podcast and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And it's driven by our team of action takers, the Righteous Media team. Creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez, and my amazing wife and two boys, who always get massive thanks for their action. And speaking of action, just a couple weeks ago, I mentioned it was my son River's third birthday. And in recognition of his third birthday, we made a very special visit 
to visit some heroes who are people of action. We went to see the brave firefighters of Ladder 20 in New York, the FDNY Ladder 20 in Soho, which is the home of Andrew Sarah, brother of Rob Sarah, frequent guest on this show and host of the Firefighters with Rob Sarah. But Andrew and Stefan and all the guys on duty were very generous and opened up Ladder 20 to River and Ryder and me and Lori. And we got to visit the firehouse to celebrate River's birthday. And maybe the coolest part of all, we got to meet Hank the Tank. Hank the Tank is the best firefighting dog in all of New York City, maybe in all of America. He is a very charismatic, very energetic Dalmatian. You can find him on Instagram. He's tankyboy underscore 20. But my boys, maybe the best birthday present they could have asked for was to visit a firehouse, to meet Hank the Tank, and to meet heroes, people who are running in when so many others are running out. And as the world is watching Russians attack key sites all across Ukraine, While the firefights are ongoing, brave Ukrainian firefighters are working to control the fires and save lives. They are true heroes. And we stand with them and all of the people of Ukraine in this moment. And so to those firefighters, as our friend Rob Sarah would say, stay low. America is divided, but at Independent Americans and Righteous Media, we're working to change that. We're going to add light to contrast the heat. And if you're part of that 42% of Americans who are independent, This is your show, and Righteous Media is your place. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, and you're not a diehard, this is your show too. We invite everyone to join us and be a part of the solution. Check out all the Righteous Media podcasts. The Firefighters with Rob Sarah has a new episode dropping on Friday, March 11th. And there is a new episode of B-Dorm. B-Dorm, hosted by Don Elevert and Jericho Turner, now has two episodes up. Check them out and get ready for more. You can find them anywhere you got this pod or at righteous.us. Keep sharing these voices and keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy, especially in Ukraine right now. And it's an energy that is contagious and it's keeping this movement of independent Americans growing week by week and it's fueling the fight in Ukraine and inspiring the world. There's an old saying that used to be on the wall of my math class in high school. Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do little. And right now, everyone can do something. Everyone can take action. Two episodes ago, I played the classic song Russians by Sting. It was recorded in 1985 at the height of the Cold War, a year after Red Dawn premiered in theaters and a year before Top Gun was released. That was a time I grew up in. A time when, as a little boy, I was worried about Soviet nukes. And today, my son and our children are growing up with the same fears. And that song has new meaning. And Sting has answered the call. Sting has taken action. And Sting recently posted this. I've only rarely sung this song in the many years since it was written because I never thought it would be relevant again. But in the light of one man's bloody and woefully misguided decision to invade a peaceful, unthreatening neighbour. The song is once again a plea for our common humanity. For the brave Ukrainians fighting against this brutal tyranny, and also the many Russians who are protesting this outrage despite the threat of arrest and imprisonment. We all of us love our children. Stop the war. America, there's a growing feeling of hysteria, conditioned to respond to all the threats and the rhetorical speeches of the Soviet. Mr. Khrushchev said we will bury you. I don't subscribe to this point of view. Be such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians love their children too. The Russians do love their children, too. But Putin does not. And it's why he must be stopped. For Ukraine, for Russia, for America, for the world. Easy is over. And the people of Ukraine are crying out for our help. And they're fighting with everything they have. They are all taking action. Even grandmas. Did you hear about the Ukrainian lady who took out a Russian drone with a jar of pickles? 
Yeah. DroneDJ.com is one of the many places that had the story. But a Ukrainian woman took down a spy drone with a jar. When I saw it originally, I tweeted that I don't know if this is true or not, but either way, it's brilliant. Ukraine is crushing the media and social media war and continuing to win and inspire hearts and minds worldwide. And then there was an update. The media found that lady. The story was proven. It was true with a small correction. It wasn't pickles or cucumbers. It was pickled tomatoes. There's a Ukrainian woman named Alina who was sitting on her balcony, smoking in the wee hours of the morning when she saw something float by in the distance. Is it a beaten down crow? She wondered before noticing a faint buzzing sound. Alina had never even seen a drone before, but as the flying machine came closer and closer, she realized it wasn't a bird. Sensing something sinister was happening, the mother of two ran into the house and grabbed the first thing she saw, a big jar of canned tomatoes, and she threw the jar at the drone with all her might. She said, I was afraid. I thought it might start firing at me. But what a pity for those tomatoes. They were my favorite. The jar hit the target, and the drone came crashing down. Alina and her husband then trampled on the wreckage, got rid of the machine's parts and garbage cans, afraid the Russian soldiers might try to track it down. But her name is Alina. She lives in an urban district in the city of Kiev and works at a small shop in the neighborhood that sells household supplies like soap and washing powder. And this is what she said. I'm not going anywhere from Kiev. I decided so instantly. This is my home, my land. I will stand gnaw, fight, and fight some more. I'll do all that is necessary. Ukraine is fighting with everything they have, and we need to fight harder. Now is the time to do more than stand with Ukraine. It's the time to fight alongside Ukraine. In the last few episodes, I laid it out. Now, until further notice, we must fight alongside Ukraine in whatever way we can, and we must take action. This is the time to stand up and join the fight by their side in whatever way you can until it's over. We must stay vigilant. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. We're all in this together, especially now, and maybe more than any other time in our lifetime. The world is united. All across America, all across Ukraine, all across Russia, and all around the world, we are in this together. From President Zelensky, to the American veterans volunteering to fight, to the firefighters inside Ukraine, to Sting, to all the pilots waiting in the wings, to Alina, the Ukrainian lady with the jar of tomatoes, to you. This is the danger zone, but it's time to enter it. We can rise to this moment and take action and help Ukraine not only survive, but win. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening and for supporting this movement. Down with Putin. Glory to Ukraine. And stay vigilant, America. We share the same biology, regardless of ideology. And what might save us, me and you, is that the Russians love their children Media.